Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. <laughs> Tommy took Tommy's taking a <laughs> big, big swig drink of there. coffee. It's like that kind of day. Today in the pod, we'll be talking to the former anchor of the CBS Evening News, Dan Rather. He's cool. And later, we'll be talking to the host of Pod Save the People, Duray McKesson. Love it. How was the beacon? The beacon was awesome. It was a great show. The first of the two beacon shows is out now. We had Ronan Farrow come by, and then a panel of Katie Turr, Alex Wagner, Michelle Wolf, one of my favorite shows. Awesome show. The crowd in New York was awesome. I listened at the gym, and I giggled uncomfortably with lots of people around me. They were so smart. Michelle, so funny. I love an all-women panel because uh, they don't interrupt each other. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it was a great show. And then this week, we have... Van Jones, Chris Kelly of SNL, and comedian Cristela Alonso. Cool. And then our second Beacon show is going to come out as our Thanksgiving episode. Awesome. Cool. Tell me who's on Pod Save the World on Friday and uh, and tell us about the new new schedule, the new change. Got a lot going on in my world, John. Thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> Pod Save the World is moving to Fridays. Mm-hmm. I always thought of it as more of a weekend show. You kind of you chillax with your friends. You listen to some Pod Save the World. Chillax. It also, it also gives me a lot more time to record during the week and keep it topical. I feel like we found the... Uh, the buried lead of the movement <laughs> this week. Uh, right now, you can listen to an episode with an Asia expert named Danny Russell, who helps you understand why Trump took a five-nation, 13-day swing through Asia, how it's going, what successes, failures are, etc. Later this week, I'm going to record an interview about what the hell's going on in Saudi Arabia and Lebanon, because it's freaking a lot of people out. And then this Wednesday, my crooked conversation with Jane Mayer, the author nice. of the book Dark Money, which I've mentioned 600,000 times, is out. And if you... Please listen to the interview. You don't have to do it this week. You don't have to listen to it on Wednesday, but listen to it sometime because the money problem of money in politics is so important and uh, you need to hear it. Guys, subscribe to Cricket Conversations. Some of the best conversations are happening there. <laughs> Dan Pfeiffer and Mark Leibovich about the NFL. We got Tommy and Jane Mayer. I cannot Just go subscribe, guys. Wait to they're find like, out what they're first like 20, down 30 is. minute conversations. <laughs> I'm going to find out what, what those chains are for. I'm going to find out... Uh, about all different kinds of pads. Who are those stripey guys? Yeah. Chains are for. Um, <laughs> what do they say? We're and moving also, the chains. We, uh, <laughs> is that what yeah, they that's said? what they say. Love it. New pod that we announced <laughs> last week. Majority 54 with Jason Kander. Already at the number top of one. The, number one. So, you know what? It Number one, it defeated a true crime podcast, which I is know, like I heard the you, David versus Goliath so funny situation. I listened to Love or Leave It on Sunday, and I heard you yelling about the true crime podcast. And I know you threw in Jason as a cover for complaining about Love It or Leave It not making it to number one. <laughs> well, that was, that, was, that, was that was because of S-Town. That was because of S-Town. But now Jason did it. Jason got to number one. Yeah, and good for Jason. But all I'm saying is, I mean, I can't go back in time. But man, launching at the same time as S-Town, we'll it's never tough. get to, it was tough. Uh, so that will be out uh, this Friday, November 17th, will be the first episode of Majority 54. Go subscribe right now. It's going to be great. All right. Let's talk about the news. Okay. So the big debate within the Democratic Party right now is, you know, who will lead the party out of the mm-hmm. wilderness? How far left should we move? What's our message? How do we How sad Trump? did Donna Brazil's book make us? Yeah, how sad did Donna Brazil's book make us? So that's, that's what's going on in the Democratic Party. Uh, the big debate within the Republican <laughs> Party right now is... Should we support an alleged child molester for Senate in order to prevent a Democrat from winning the seat? That's the big debate. Uh, On Thursday, the Washington Post reported that Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore pursued teenage girls when he was in his 30s, including an incident where he initiated sexual contact with a 14-year-old. That woman, a Republican who voted for Donald Trump, went on the record with the allegation Again, she is a Republican who voted for Donald Trump, uh, went on the record with the allegation, and the entire Post story was based on interviews interviews with more than 30 other people, a lot of people who knew gone. more mm. at the time. Uh, Moore denied the incident with the 14-year-old, but did not deny that he used to date teenage girls while in his 30s. Some news today. This morning, another accuser is alleging that Moore assaulted her when she was a minor. And yet, despite all this, 
We have only a handful of Republicans have called on Moore to drop out of the race. McCain, Romney, Kasich, Larry Hogan, governor of Maryland, and now today Mitch McConnell has called mm-hmm. him to drop out. A couple of others here and there withdrew their endorsement. The largest chunk of Senate Republicans and the White House have all done the, uh, if true, if true, he <laughs> should pathetic. step aside. And then we've got the other crew, which is most Alabama Republican officials and the entire Trump media are defending more and, uh, and using the opportunity to attack the media, the Democrats, and of course, the woman who came forward. Let's, <sighs> let's start with the if true crowd. What kind of additional hard evidence do you think these folks are looking for? Could we start with the fact that you, there didn't need to be allegations that Roy Moore sexually molested a 14-year-old to know that he was not qualified for this job? Let's just That's start a good there. Start. That's and also, a good start. I would like the media to stop dancing around what this is. This is child molestation, if it's true. It's not sexual misconduct. It's not all the euphemism they're peddling. It's child molestation. And this is a guy who, before these allegations were even revealed, said that a Muslim couldn't be elected to public office. And so, like, all manner of divisive, disgusting things. Well, he spent, and he spent his career vilifying people for consensual adult relationships. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it is no surprise that he has sort of covered up whatever creepy things he's done in his past with this, you know, disgusting in-your-face overt uh, theocracy that he's peddled from his various positions of power. I mean, he is manifestly unfit for the job, and there's no if-true needed on that statement. Yeah, it's the, there's uh, no small irony in the fact that Roy Moore, who's now asking, uh, you know, innocent until proven guilty, has spent his entire career flouting the law, saying <laughs> that when a Supreme Court makes a decision, it doesn't count, yeah. believing that homosexuality should be illegal, believing that Keith Ellison, because he's Muslim, shouldn't serve in the United States Congress. Now he wants the benefit of the doubt. But let's let's talk about the, how the Republican Party has reacted here. So now you've got... McConnell and a couple of them saying he should step aside. Let's have a write-in candidate, which they can do. Um, of course, having a write-in candidate, this more cannot get off the ballot unless he drops out. It doesn't look like he's dropping out anytime soon. If you had a write-in candidate, in all likelihood, Doug Jones, the Democrat, would win the Senate seat. Mm-hmm. There are a number of Republicans who have decided that uh, it is it is worse for a Democrat to win a Senate seat than to elect someone who has been accused of uh, sexual molestation of a minor and so, uh, an allegation that's backed up by 30 sources. Right. And you don't <laughs> and you don't have to view McConnell's actions here as some sort of like defense of moral probity because he's looking at this and thinking actually having Roy Moore win would be as damaging as it gets, right? There's people making the calculus that having Roy Moore is better than having Democrat, and there's people making the calculus that having Roy Moore would be worse than the Democrat, but not enough people simply saying, well, a few, a few people willing to say, this is just morally reprehensible, exactly. politics be damned. That's the problem with this, is like, all, basically what the margins of the debate you described are political calculations. Yeah. No one is thinking, is it acceptable to allow a man in this august body, this deliberative body that we all revere, who allegedly molested a 14-year-old girl and plied a bunch of other 17- and 8-year-old girls with alcohol when he was in his 30s. And, oh, yeah, his colleague said, yeah, we all thought it was weird that he would hang out at the mall and high school football games and shit all the time. Like, there is so much evidence that this guy is a creep. That girl was at a custody hearing. Unbelievable. (laughs) He was a member of the state picking up a little girl and grooming her uh, when his mother was there for divorce court. Now, let's move on to the defenders, the outright defenders, who are the worst people in this whole process, uh, aside from Roy Moore himself. Uh, So their responses range from, these women are liars, the fake media made this up, to what about X, what about Y, the the whataboutism is all over the place. And it's like, okay, we can have all these conversations some other time. But right now, there's an election on December 12th, and this man might come to the U.S. Senate. So maybe let's focus on that instead of uh, John F. Kennedy's... That was the... Yeah, Ann Coulter <laughs> saying John F. Kennedy you know, had an affair with a 19-year-old once. It's like, okay, I'll tell you what, I, I definitely shouldn't have voted for JFK in that 1960. Was it. That's how I feel. Gideon was funny. He's like, you're right. When JFK is next up for uh, election, we should consider <laughs> these no, misconduct we Really, we should think about this. Uh, so there's a lot of whataboutism. There's the, you know, these women are liars. That ha- and then the, the, the most insane in a, in, a, in a whole slew of insane responses to this is uh, Alabama State Auditor Jim Ziegler. He said, take Joseph and Mary. Mary was a teenager and Joseph was an adult carpenter. They became parents of Jesus. 
I mean, uh, okay. I have some, well, some, 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 whoo, so, so I am Jewish. Not, someone has not read some, one Christian has not read the new Testament closely. <laughs> I will say that. Um, I mean, but also like that, that's right in line with what Moore said. He said, it's a completely manufactured story meant to defrock this campaign. They don't want to acknowledge that there is a God and we have refused to debate them because of their very liberal stance on transgenderism. So he cut to the heart of the matter there. This is, well, this is the Eric Erickson <laughs> argument, right? He's Eric Erickson, basically, I've read state had this whole long post that was makes you want to just claw your eyeballs out (laughs) where he says you know i understand roy moore's supporters and defenders and and the voters who stick with them because you know democrats democrats are for gun control and abortion that's basically the argument there and and you know they believe they don't think that um being transgender is a, a mental health disorder Let's just take this piece by piece. Like the idea that it is somehow unbelievable or unsurprising or undercuts the credibility of the accusers that these allegations occurred 40 years ago is actually the exact opposite. I think the Harvey Weinstein allegations showed us that it's in fact very common for people to wait a long time to come out and make allegations like this, especially when the individual, the male involved is a powerful person and they were a young kid. So it's outrageous that they're leaning on that. Well, it's, it's especially Special outrageous excuse. they're leaning on that because what has happened now to these women since they've since they've come out and done this, the fucking assholes at Breitbart are sending two reporters down there to try to discredit these women, yep. to try to attack these dis- accusers. That's what one media outlet's doing. Uh, Sean Hannity had a guest on who said that, yeah, women usually make this stuff up and they usually do it for money. That's what Sean Hannity did. Sean Hannity, who previously interviewed Bill O'Reilly on his show, right? Right. who has defended Roger Ailes and all the rest. This is an important reminder because this happens all the time. If if a young African-American kid gets shot by the cops, you'll see that they, you know, were alleged to have smoked marijuana or were arrested before. And now with these women, it's, oh, they were divorced or they didn't pay the taxes. It is totally irrelevant to the allegations. You, whether you got divorced in the future after you were sexually molested as a 14-year-old doesn't fucking matter. Yeah. You know who's been divorced quite a few times and has had a, <laughs> oh, an interesting romantic history? Donald Trump. Yeah. Somebody was oh. like – somebody pointed like, oh, man, one of these accusers has gone bankrupt several times and has gotten divorced several times. It's like, well, not only should we believe her, we should make her president. And, and, and really more like he's not <laughs> – Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, especially like the 12 women who have come out uh, and said that, they, that Donald Trump has sexually assaulted and harassed them. Maybe we should maybe we should believe them since you know he he's a uh, guy who's been divorced three times and gone bankrupt. And, and again, Roy Moore is only denying the one incident – uh, with the 14-year-old, because that one is the only one that's technically illegal. He's not categorically ruling out that he dated teenagers. His explanation of why he couldn't have given them alcohol because it was a dry town was that factually wrong. Uh, alcohol was readily available in the town he lived in. So there's a record of him lying and quibbling with the facts here just to sort of uh, deny only the part that could get him in the most trouble. And everyone's sort of like, okay with the rest. So let's talk about how how deep the rot of tribalism on the right goes here so in Hannity's case a couple of sponsors uh, for his show have decided to stop sponsoring the show stop advertising the show after he you know had people on who were defending more giving more the benefit of the doubt one of them is the company Keurig uh, makes the coffee makers and uh, yesterday because Keurig pulled their ads from Hannity you know a bunch of uh, Hannity supporters uh, decided to video themselves throwing their Keurigs (laughs) Out the window and destroying them, I just, I, guys. We, we, if 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 parachute sheets decides to stop advertising on our show for some reason because we you know defended a child molester or something like that, please don't burn your parachute sheets. Um, don't do that. Hard disagree. Uh, if there ever comes a time where for whatever reason parachutes stop sponsoring their show, I want to see the fires burn for days. I want I wanted to I wanted to create weather in Europe. Guys, is there, I just. Is there anyone's show you'd throw your appliances out the window for that you enjoy that much? No, not even don't... for the show because an advertiser decided to go a different way. Right, right. <laughs> no, 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 no that, but that's the, the, the irony of it. They, they don't even get the irony. They're like, how dare you boycott his show? We're boycotting you for political reasons. It is so ludicrous. That's not really how a boycott works. You already bought the product. Yeah, they're just breaking you're their just, own shit. You're just making yourself a little less caffeinated in the morning <laughs> now. <laughs> someone, someone found that somebody said, so Hannity uh, enjoying this because he's a sleazy little goon, uh, said, I'm going to give away 500 coffee makers. And one of his supporters was like, I hope they're Keurig so then we can smash them. And it's like, wait, now you want <laughs> Now you want him to go out and buy extras because of the visual gag? It's like, you know memes aren't real. Like memes 
aren't the world, buddy. <laughs> I, uh... So the question is, will this work? Will this work in Alabama? Uh, and, be, you know, we have some – there's a couple polls out. The latest one said that Doug Jones is actually up 48-44 with leaners. Um, there's one that shows it even. Of course, you know, taking polls in the middle of a crisis mm-hmm. like this, you, you you know, you're unsure what kind of responses you'll get. Sometimes maybe Republicans don't go to the phone. So we have to wait a week to see what the polling shakes out. NBC went down to Alabama and did a story where they interviewed 15 Republicans in Alabama, all of whom said, of course, we're still with more. Uh, this is just it, in, you get, in that you get a lot of it's the media. The media is fake. They're doing this. Or they say, you know, he's a good guy. These women are making up. They were Democrat operatives. And also 29% of Alabama voters told the pollsters that those allegations make them more likely to vote for Roy Moore, which I assume is based on all the sort of tribalism. Oh, he's just being attacked by the big Democrats. Right. Yada, yada, nonsense. Right, right, right. But it's depressing. I mean, this to me is, I think, like, there's two pieces of this that show the kind of rot that not only Trump took advantage of, but that Trump makes worse. One is this notion that, oh, if the news is bad... It's partisan. I don't have to trust it. You know, that you can that it makes you more likely to support someone just as a fuck you to whoever reported it. And that's a sort of this weird right wing thing that sort of bubbled up into the mainstream of the culture. But the second piece of this, which I thought was fascinating, a poll came out that showed this incredible shift among evangelicals that before Trump, uh, people were asked, like, do you believe basically I'm going to, you know, paraphrase this. But basically, do you believe someone needs to have good morals to be good at representing your values when they're in office. And it used to be that evangelicals were the one that said those things have to align, right? That you have to have good morals in, in your personal life and in your private life to, to, to represent people well uh, once they're in office. And that the election of Trump caused this massive shift where now 70% of evangelicals say you don't have to have good morals in your private life to, to pursue the right policies once you're elected. And once you say that that's okay, once you say character doesn't matter, you see what happens with Roy Moore, that I don't think you'd see as many apologists for Roy Moore if people didn't spend months before the election apologizing for Donald Trump. Well, and it, it, it seems like it's this negative partisanship. It's not that the supporters love Roy Moore or love Donald Trump. It's that they can't—they literally can't imagine anything worse than a Democrat winning. One of the one of the <laughs> interviewees in Alabama in that uh, new NBC story said, "If he killed Obama, we wouldn't care." Yeah, that was a cool quote. This is a Republican. You know, I mean, and you, I mean, the whole, the whole, <laughs> the original joke during the campaign from Donald Trump: if I shot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue, my supporters wouldn't care. Seems more, it seems truer every day. This is someplace, you know, we've talked about this before. Like, oh, what if it was the everything was reversed and there was a Democratic version of Trump running against Dick Cheney or whatever the hypothetical we've gone over again and again? I can tell you unequivocally, <laughs> right, that if the Democrats nominated somebody that that was a crank, and then in the weeks before the election, it turned out he was a fucking pedophile. You put up the L. We lost yeah, this one. We lost it. It's okay. We're gonna there have... are things worse than losing a fucking election, Hugh Hewitt. That it's guy. not. It's not oh, the yeah, end Hugh, of the world. Hugh Hewitt. Uh, constant Constitutional scholar Hugh Hewitt saying that uh, maybe we should cancel the election. We don't the like up- the news. Cancel the election. Yeah, that yeah, was- he's like, oh, well, we can't allow the people to be trapped with a manifestly unqualified nominee like you guys just handed us with the president of the United States. What are you talking about, Hugh? <laughs> yeah, I know. He, he cited the fact that one time Democrats replaced uh, Bob Torricelli with Frank Lautenberg right before the election. Fine. If they want to replace replace Roy Moore with someone right before the election, do that. You don't cancel the fucking election. Also, Where since are when we? is our moral standard the worst thing New Jersey Democrats ever did? <laughs> <laughs> like, like that's where in the where in the fucking New Testament is that? <laughs> uh, I want to move on to the to the foreign trip, but before we get there, I just want to talk about Bannon. Yes. especially this has been getting you particularly annoyed. Tommy's goat. So right before the more stuff really broke, you know, Bannon does this interview with the New York Times where he talks about a strategy to defeat McConnell, and he's this brilliant strategist, and it's all about a war against McConnell and all this kind of stuff. You know. It goes unsaid during the interview that, uh, you know, Ralph Northam just won in, in Virginia after Bannon basically said that uh, Gillespie was going to win because he embraced Corey Stewart's, yeah. you know, Confederate campaign. Is Bannon overrated here? Yes. Why, why, is he get, why does he still get this? First of all, all political operatives are overrated. You're, you're, you're good until you're not. You're, you know, like we all lose some, we all win some. But let's be clear about who Steve Bannon is. is he is an opportunist. He is not some genius political operator. He got fired from the White House after six months. He failed to pass any significant part of Trump's agenda. And the things he did work on, like the Muslim ban, he fucked up royally. He declared Trumpism was on the ballot in Virginia and then got worked. 
The candidate he recruited to run for Senate in Alabama was accused of child molestation. No one has ever been worse at his job than Steve Bannon. He's a guy who works at a racist blog that defends child molesters and lies for a living. And for the fucking New York Times to walk him through the office and do this puff piece bullshit video, like with his chummy garbage ending where he tells them how great their product is and they kiss his ass like he's some Svengali genius, is fucking outrageous. Like they are pathetic supplicants to this guy like not just the new york times but the press cover him like he is a candidate like he's some shadow president he got run out of the building and he's and he's a conspiracy peddler right like he's he's, a liar he's He's a a liar liar. he was he was up in fucking new hampshire spreading a conspiracy that the the election was stolen in new hampshire in 2016 when there's no fucking evidence of that when everyone has proved it wrong when republicans in the state say it's not true he's out there now saying that all the allegations are against roy moore are some conspiracy by fucking jeff bezos in the washington post yeah when it's a trump supporting republican who accused him of doing this to her when she was 14 years old like steve bannon is a fucking liar stop pretending he is a political operative that is on the fucking level he's, he's a, a liar he's a he's a crank he is a crank that was elevated by donald trump because donald trump was su- su- surrounded by the dregs of conservative yes. public life he is and the and that he is taken seriously now because donald trump pulled an he upset won. Because, because he, he won. won winners get winners are held in the highest esteem in washington above all else you can yep. have any kind of sin but if you are a winner in washington you will get taken seriously you will get invited to the dinners you will get invited to the new and york the thing times is, though, that's what it takes all you need to do is win and he won and that's true but that didn't validate every single thing that steve bannon ever said it didn't make steve bannon a strategic wizard it made him, in many ways, a very lucky crank yep. whose ideas are taken much more seriously now than they, than they should. And we see that in Virginia. We see that in Alabama. We see that across the country. He's got a proof point of one. He's just the worst. And also, like, the, the Republican Party, the House Republicans, sent an emissary over to his office to kiss his ass to make sure he wouldn't be intervening in their elections like he is in the Senate elections. It is so pathetic the way they're bowing down to this guy. All he is is a, a white supremacist backed up by a whole bunch of money from Robert Mercer. And like, like what don't, links... We don't need to fear this guy and his lying bullshit. He doesn't also... It's like, oh, wow, what a philosopher. You know, it's like, what links Roy Moore <laughs> to all these other people that he's recruited? He's a guy that, you know, he's a troll. He's a billionaire-funded guy. He's causing chaos, right? But like, ultimately, what does this all amount to? Like, it's nothing. There's no, there's no heft there. There's no intellectual rigor there. There's just a racist crank... Uh, who has some Seinfeld money. Bannon. Bad. Stop kissing his ass. Yeah, stop kissing his ass. New York Times at all. Okay, let's talk about the foreign trip. Everything seemed to be relatively quiet during Trump's 11-day Asia trip until he had a bit of an episode on Saturday. Uh, I guess he got a little tired. Meltdown. First, he said that he believes that Putin believes that Russia didn't interfere with our election uh, and called the heads of our intel agencies political hacks. His direct quote was, every time he sees me, Putin, he says, I didn't do that, and I really believe that when he tells me that, he means it. <laughs> and he said he's, he's, Putin is, feels very insulted. Yes, feels reports. very insulted. Very insulted. They did do that. <laughs> so Trump later seemed to walk back the statement uh, and say that he's with our intel agencies as currently constituted. He was holding a fucking newspaper right? <laughs> while, uh, while General <laughs> Kelly stared at him from off, off screen. You but, say what I said to you to say. Distinction without a difference here. He's like, yeah, I, I'm with our intel agencies, but I do believe that Putin in his head believes that he didn't do it, which means that you believe Putin. Like, it's not, don't, don't, why you, don't even give in to the nonsense. Yes. He, he's, he's so confused because he talks about, he's like, well, people don't realize how much uh, they've been suffering under sanctions. And if, you know, if we, maybe if we stopped that and we had a better relationship, we could help get help from them in Ukraine and Syria and all these places. He doesn't understand that the sanctions that are squeezing Putin are the result of like invading Crimea. Right. Right. Going to war essentially with Ukraine. I mean, he just is like he will go to any lengths to try to explain away what happened in this election. And he's just giving up the farm to Putin, giving up the farm to Xi Jinping. It is embarrassing. We'll talk about that. What are the consequences of Trump's statements besides, you know, driving us all crazy? Like how do Putin and other world leaders see that and how do they react to that kind of thing? I mean, I think the story of this trip, like it it was sort of a fine trip, like nothing Mm -hmm. Nothing really bad happened. There wasn't yeah. some huge deliverable that was a that didn't go well. But what all these countries have figured out is 
Trump lives and breathes hyperbole. Usually it's him saying it about himself. If they give him the red carpet treatment, if they kiss his ass a little bit, he is happy as a clam. They don't actually have to give him anything in terms of like, you know, deliverable priorities that we want as right. a nation. They just need to kiss his ass. So he just sort of skirts through this meeting and he, he just goes wants to give he, him a five star Yelp review. Yeah, exactly. He meets with a guy like Rodrigo Duterte, the, the president of the Philippines, who is literally a mass murderer and does this chummy handshake and they have a bilateral meeting and they don't press him on the fact that he's like indiscriminately rounding up people and killing them because they're suspected to be drug dealers. I mean, so like we are we are giving up our. Uh, moral leadership on the world stage. We pulled that of TPP, which was a big trade deal with all these countries. Everyone but us announced a deal while he was there uh, for a new sort of TPP minus America deal, which in any other world would be seen as a huge humiliation for the United States. But it kind of just gets glossed over because it's seen as like Bannonist politics to walk away from trade, even though these countries are now, you know, Moving on without us. Yeah, we've got a major international trade agreement now without America. We have the Paris deal, climate accord, which now has every country, including Syria. Syria joined. From the idiots who used to say that leading from behind a background quote in a New Yorker story was the worst thing ever to happen to our foreign policy. Now we're not leading at all. (laughs) Uh, Be remiss if I didn't uh, bring up the North Korea tweet from Trump. That was weird. Why would Kim Jong-un insult me by calling me old when I would never call him short and fat? Oh, well, I try so hard to be his friend. And maybe someday that will happen. I, I would I would actually say that the second half of that quote is the... What is he trying to be his friend for? Maybe some, What uh, was that? I don't know. He's got a hundred-word vocabulary. He's lost in the world. He was very tired. We don't understand any of it. Trump, Trump 280 Twitter, by the way, is the fucking worst. Yeah, it's too much. 280 characters on Twitter is awful for everyone. <laughs> it's like, and no it's more. the worst thing Twitter has ever done. <laughs> yeah. But with Trump, it is it is magnified. Honestly, it, although uh, he's lost some of his step, he's it's lost gonna life. it's gonna cause an inter- like the extra characters is gonna cause a war. It's gonna get us there. <laughs> it's just the guy is like it's so. Embarrassing. I guess that, like, General Kelly saying that he doesn't follow his tweets. Like, no, I'm sure you don't. We, we give Kelly. right. Yeah. Like there are all these little political lies that everyone's okay with. Like right, when Barack Obama is like, "Well, I don't look. I don't listen. Look at the polls." Like, yes, you did all right, the right. time. So we give this little wiggle room to all these operatives and candidates. But in this case, it's like. Hey, bud, dereliction of duty. He's talking shit to a you know nuclear armed lunatic in North Korea. Again, you know, I get when people say, "Oh, we pay too much attention to his tweets at home." I can understand that to a point, but in foreign policy, the president's statements are policy often, as yeah. Sean Spicer said they were. Right? right? I mean, I, I sort of and divide, I think it's much more dangerous. I divide Trump's behavior on these trips into like the two ba- baskets, and one of them are the the moral and like public facing calamities and like that's him getting all chummy with Duterte and him saying to that look Putin looked me in the eyes and said something and because I'm a vulnerable mark whose ego can easily be stroked I I believe him and now I'm in love with him and I'll do whatever Putin (laughs) says Uh, but then there's like the larger right like the trade deal is the bigger deal right like I I, I almost feel like we're having on the, the trade thing like oh that's that's China taking advantage of Trump. That's China getting to skip a few spaces ahead because we elected our worst person. The Trump conversation with Putin, it just felt like deja vu. Like I feel like we've been through this exact same news cycle before. Trump talks to Putin. He gets charmed. He says we have great chemistry because he talks like he's on the fucking love connection in 1987. And then... Then the press gets mad, and then he gives another statement where he says mm-hmm. what the sta- what the staffers want to say, and then we're right back to baseline. I can't yeah. tell if it's him just... getting charmed by Putin or he is so stubborn and proud that he knows in his mind, he's like, oh, when I'm going to have this meeting with Putin, the press is going to say, oh, now he likes Putin again, and I'm not going to give it to them. I'm not going to say I was wrong. I'm not going to be tough on this guy because the press wants me to be tough and, on this guy. And, and so I'm not going to do it just to spite them. And of course, undergirding all of this is the strange reluctance to be critical of Putin, where Sometimes people want to be a mark because yeah. it seems that for Trump being a mark, as is, if he has something on him, I right. think it's all of the above. I think he was charmed by Xi Jinping, who like walked him around the old city and you know kissed his ass. I think uh, you know Putin confuses him. He doesn't want to believe that they interfered in the election because it makes him feel inadequate. And then like you look at some place like the Philippines. I mean. I, I think he doesn't push Duterte on human rights because he probably fundamentally doesn't care. But also, he's got a $150 million project going up in Manila. Okay, okay. this guy is compromised all over the planet. And don't tell me for a second that that's not his first priority because he acts like it is. Because we visit Trump properties everywhere he goes. I yeah. mean, if Trump, <laughs> whenever Trump is not president, at some point, he is going to not be able to stop himself from saying, I made money on this whole thing. 
<laughs> and that's coming. But the, I did great. Yeah, I mean, you look. I look at the country. The stock market oh, did great. I a, did great. And that estate tax cut too. That's that, that yeah. really helped me. Yeah, I know. So you that pass through. Oh man, yeah. I'm doing great. I made a. I made a. I made a big time. But uh, I feel like that dude, that handshake, that deeply strange kind of mm-hmm. crossed over arm handshake where Trump looks like. Uh, He's uh, uh, taking a dump because he's or can't or can't or can't because uh, he actually has never stretched before. Right. Because he's like completely he's never done any exercises at golf. So he's like his face is all contorting. He's holding these people's hands. It's both. It's a reflection of everything. Right. Because it's like staff should have prevented that from happening. Right. You don't do uh, fraternity handshakes. I hate hate making fun of the pictures. Everyone did that with Obama. No, 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 no. no. These are such little things. Barack Obama did not do a fucking Barack Obama. Obama did not do a a double fisted handshake with That's with a mass funny. murderer. It's something funny. I don't think it's reflective of anything. I think else. the Duterte part, of it. the handshake the doesn't Duterte. bother me. It's the Duterte. It's the Duterte part. Duterte right, part. Right, right, That's right. what I'm saying. That that staff would have stepped in and stopped him from doing a weird double armed fucking dance with a mass murderer. Because <laughs> and, and same thing with by the way him not taking questions when he's in China. Right. That there's no one there's no one good with Trump who's like. Hey, this is a place where we should push back. There's no mm-hmm. one around him who has Shut, the kind of capacity shutting to push out back. the White House for target. The you know Doug Mills yes. couldn't get a picture that day and everything. I mean, this is just it's basic staff work that doesn't happen. <laughs> oh, that's why Doug Mills been. posted that picture because he's like, yeah. yeah, I'll take this of a t- screenshot and make you look ridiculous. In 2009, uh, we did not take press questions with Obama in China. Uh, that was a mistake. In 2014, we did. But like when you're a press staffer or an advanced staffer or you're preparing for these trips, it is incumbent upon you to fight for this kind of access, yeah. whether it's a news conference or whether it is simply like getting the pool into like pool sprays or whatever it might be. Not only do they not fight for them, but when, in, when uh, the press was brought into the Duterte spray, he called them spies and started making fun of Trump the press just corps. Giggled and Trump and just sat there, yucked it up, and refused to take their questions. That's like, a, that to me is the, that was the most unbearable thing that he did. And is just let that happen. As people pointed out, accusing reporters of being spies is often how they're tortured. Right. It's like it's not a joke. No, no it's not, not a joke, at all. especially when you have a fucking mass murderer there. OK, let's talk about something we can do something about, which is tax reform. The Senate Republicans outlined their tax plan last Thursday. Uh, this week, the House is going to try to pass their plan. The Senate's going to try to get their plan out of committee. Here's the differences with the House bill. Uh, the Senate bill delays the corporate tax cut for an extra year. It preserves the mortgage deduction and the medical expense deduction. And yet it gets rid of state and local tax deductions altogether. It doubles the estate tax deduction from $5 million to $11 million, but doesn't end it. Uh, so all these sort of accounting gimmicks, it's the same, it's the same kind of crap because uh, the nonpartisan Joint Committee on Taxation, which is something that is cited by Republicans, um, says under the Senate plan, mm-hmm. 20 million households earning less than $200,000 would see a tax increase. $20 million under $200,000. Another $50 million households under $200,000 see no tax cut at all. And yet, millionaires get an average tax cut of $48,000. It's like a comic book evil version of what a Republican tax speaking plan of that, be. Speaking of that, here's comic book evil. It retains the tax break for owners of golf courses. <laughs> Come on. How's that? That's, Shut up. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so Trump this morning... Throwing another grenade into the negotiation, <laughs> says he called for a deeper tax cut mm. for people making over $500,000, oh, paid okay. for by repealing the individual mandate in the Affordable Care Act, which would cause everyone's premiums to rise. So in order to give people making over $500,000 an even bigger tax cut, we're going to have premiums rise on middle class people. Seems That's dumb. where we're at right now. And here's the problem, though, guys. There are no confirmed no votes in the Senate on this bill, which is our only hope because the goons in the House, you know, Paul Ryan's going to get them to pass anything. You got, by the way, you got, you got all these Republicans in California and New Jersey and New York who are basically voting to raise taxes on a whole bunch of their constituents, uh, on a whole bunch. I can't wait for the fucking ads in California these people, for the seven Republicans in this state. The idea that they're going to fucking do this. Seven Republicans in this state are sitting in districts that Hillary Clinton won. Those this seven is a Republicans, bill to fuck California, to fuck New York, and fuck New Jersey. Yes. That is what this bill is designed to do. It is designed to say to wealthy blue states, y'all can go fuck yourselves. California Republicans and New York Republicans are going to go along with this, 
even though it is literally designed to punish their constituents. It is yeah. what that is the goal. It is the goal to take money from middle class and relatively affluent New Yorkers, Californians, DC residents, San Francisco people, and take it and just give it to heirs. Hey, just a, a, a quick note to those Republicans and the people living in those districts. If you vote for this bill, the three of us will be visiting your district to talk <laughs> about it. I promise you that. Oh, we'll I, be I bet doing there will be a number on the California. I bet there will be a whole lot of other uh, digital dollars and surrogates visiting your districts. Like we're just all we're going to talk about it. That's the, all we're saying. The path, we're talk about it. the path to two eighteen in the House already ran through these California districts and some of these New York districts yeah. and some of these New Jersey districts. <laughs> night, and night. now they're all going to vote to raise taxes on their constituents so that Ivanka and Don Jr. can get a big tax break. It's almost as if Great. Paul Ryan... Go for it. It's almost <laughs> as if Eric, Paul Ryan... Between the healthcare votes, Between the health votes and this tax bill, it's almost as if Paul Ryan created a series of votes to make sure his colleagues lose. Like, it is designed to make them lose. If this bill passes, Eric and... Don Jr. will be able to cut the tails off of at least four more endangered elephants oh, by the end. Maybe of the they'll year. get that last white rhino. Yeah. So, <laughs> so here's the problem: there's, there's, Are they like white rhinos. There's no no votes in the Senate yet, and I think one of the reasons is they think they can just sneak this through. Uh, they're already employing the full uh, lie about this strategy. Both Paul Ryan and McConnell said that there would be no tax increases on the middle class. Paul Ryan's office had to walk it back because obviously he's too cowardly to do it himself. McConnell himself walked it back. So they're already getting caught in these lies. I think what we have to do this week is very important for everyone who's listening to put a tremendous amount of pressure on the Senate, especially uh, to say no to this bill. People like the John McCain's, the Jeff Flakes, the Bob Corkers, the Susan Collins, the Lisa Murkowski's. None of them. So all of them have expressed various levels of concern. None of them have been as opposed to this as some of them were on the health care legislation. So it is an extremely important to call your members of Congress this week and to let them know that you're opposed to this bill. There's also going to be uh, the Move On folks are organizing a protest rally Wednesday outside the Capitol. This is definitely something that we can do something about if we if we uh, if we put enough pressure. If right people now. like Corker and Murkowski and Collins adhere to the standards they've set, they should be no votes, right? Yeah. All each and every one of them has set various markers for what this bill should do, and it meets none of them because it's completely insane. And you know the thing about. The Paul, what Paul Ryan said and what Mitch McConnell said, right, that, oh, they, they went too far, right, because they said everybody gets a tax cut. There's a deeper lie here, right? Everything about what Paul Ryan says, like, this is a bill for the middle class. This is aimed at the middle class. It's just flatly untrue, right? It's untrue in a way that you can get away with a PolitiFact rating. But, like, this is not a bill for the middle yeah. class, right? You, it's mostly for corporations. And the tiny chunk that's left over for people, the vast majority of that is for rich people. And honestly, it's not even for the working rich. It's not even for your wealthy people with businesses. It's for the idle rich. It is a bill for the idle fucking rich. But it's not just not for the middle class. It actually fucks the middle class. It's it, it raised tax. It's going to raise taxes on 20 million middle class <clears throat> families making under $200,000 a year. That's a lot of fucking And it's based on an ec- economic theory that's been called supply side economics or trickle down economics that has been tried again yeah. and again and again. It doesn't work. And you know what these companies will do? Companies are making record profits. When they get a big tax cut, you know what they're probably going to do? Buy back a bunch of the shares in the company so that the shares they currently of own course. go up in value. They're like they're not, not hiring people. It's not like we've done be some this huge before. Investment. We've done this before. They <laughs> have the money it. to hire people. We tried it. There was a uh, there was a great analogy on the daily this morning that about yes. trickle down. Do you listen to the, the about the horse and the sparrow? Like uh, trickle down is is bad enough. And I was basically <laughs> saying that uh, you feed the horse extra so that there's more shit for the birds to eat. <laughs> yeah. That's how they're treating the us. horse horse and oats. <laughs> number for Congress, 202-224-3121. That's number one this week. You're going to call your members of Congress, especially if you're living in California, New Jersey, and New York. Call those mm-hmm. House members who are going to definitely probably raise taxes on you. Uh, number two thing you can do this week, go donate to Doug Jones in Alabama. Yes. There is a chance we have to we do – it was a moral imperative. We said this on the Thursday <laughs> board. It was, a mo- it was a moral imperative to defeat Roy Moore before these allegations came out because he doesn't believe in – the rule of law and has proved that his entire career is an even more moral he, imperative he, now. He is more dangerous than Donald Trump. He, he is the most dangerous person we have elected in as long as any of us can remember. And Give this five one, bucks, 10 bucks, 15, anything you can do. And yeah. this isn't a long shot anymore. Like we can win no. this thing. Yes, we, we can, can win, win in Alabama. Yes. And that, and that actually puts the Senate in play. Like there is so much at stake in Alabama right now. End of thought. When we come back, we'll be talking to the host of Pod Save the People, Duray McKesson. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. 
He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy Rails tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com store to shop. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. On the pod, we have the host of Pod Save the People, Dre McKesson. How's it going, Dre? Hey, I'm good. How are you guys doing? It's, it's cold over here on the East Coast. <laughs> it is. Come. I was just back and it was very cold, which is, uh, you know, going to be a challenge when I uh, wear the holiday themed romp him I bought as a challenge to you. <laughs> Did you actually buy one? <laughs> I purchased it, Duray. That is amazing. What well, is it like? Is it red, green, and red and green, or is it some other holiday? It's Hanukkah themed, and it says it's lit. <laughs> is that is this real? <laughs> it's happening. What are we? Oh my goodness! So I'm just doing. I'm letting you know, and the ball is in your court. Elijah's content it. eyes just lit up. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Um. So Duray, one story we didn't get to today. I want to talk to you about is there were a couple stories over the weekend and, and from last week about how Trump is reshaping the judiciary. And, uh, you know, one of his nominations, uh, this guy, Brett Talley, 36-year-old who has never tried a case and who's received a rare not qualified rating from the American Bar Association, and yet his nomination advanced through the Senate Judiciary Committee on Thursday on a party-line vote. Uh, This has happened now in quite a few cases. It's been completely under the radar. Um, How do we get people to to sound the alarm on this. Yeah, it's sort of wild is that you think about uh, there are four people nominated by Trump who have been judged not qualified by the American uh, Bar Association, and two of those were found to be not qualified by a majority of the committee, and the other two were by unanimous vote. So it's like that is that's just not happened in many cases in the country. And you also think about what he has done to the appeals court is that Trump has already appointed eight appellate judges, the most this early in a presidency since Nixon, and then just sent a ninth nominee. So he is very quickly going to change the courts in a way that, you know, these people are appointed for life. And like that is, it's like one of the things that just doesn't get as much press as some of the other awful stuff that he's doing, but we have to talk about it. That 36-year-old is wild. Is that like, how brazen and bold is that to put somebody on the court who's like never tried a case before? Like, that's insulting to to everybody and you just see the Republicans just allow this to happen is also wild. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it should be noted that two people who voted this guy out of committee are Ben Sass and Jeff Flake, two people that are ostensibly the best that side can do in terms of being anti-Trump mm-hmm. and Man, very good at talking about it, but mm-hmm. this was an easy case where they could have done the right thing and yeah. did not. Another another stat that jumped out at me today is like 91% of Trump's nominees are white, 81% are male. They are not even trying to have any sort of diversity ideologically, race, gender. They are just packing it with the youngest, most conservative men they can find. Yeah. Yeah, I was at this event once, and somebody, this is before the election, and somebody said, if Trump wins, trying to undo the damage will be like trying to unring a bell. Yeah. And that this is like a good example of, like, we'll be living with these decisions for a long time. And the courts have often been like, 
the third party check on the other power, but what happens when they're all in collusion? Yeah, right. Right. And, and I think it is one of the most damaging things he's doing in his presidency because, at least so far, his legislative agenda has stalled. He hasn't been able to pass much at all. And a lot of his executive orders, if we get a Democratic president there, we can undo a lot of the executive orders. Like we said, this is these, these appointments are for life in the judiciary. Yeah. And we should know one of the reasons they're happening is it used to take 60 votes to confirm some of these judges. And because Mitch McConnell held up every single one of Obama's judges and we couldn't get anyone through, Harry Reid got rid of the judicial filibuster. And now it only takes 51 votes to get a judge through, which also makes, by the way, the 2018 elections all the more important in the Senate. And this is this, the Doug Jones thing plays into this too, because if we flip Nevada, we flip Arizona, which are two very flippable Senate seats, and Doug Jones now goes to the Senate they lose their majority and we can stop them from appointing judges. Right. But hey, guys, I mean, not to be alarmist, but if you were trying to sort of lay the groundwork for an autocracy, yeah. you would uh, systematically undercut the press. You would systematically undercut institutions like gutting the State Department. You would pack the courts full of ideologues who will not act as a check on you. I mean, this is something that's incredibly worrisome. And it's also it's an instance where. There's almost nothing we can do about judges except for win the next election, which is why people need to be fired up about this. Yeah. Doug Jones yeah, for Senate. And a lot of local uh, judges are elected, so it will be important that we stay tuned to this so that any judges who come in with these wild ideologies that people can organize because nobody organizes their own judge elections across the country. Like, it's just not a hot topic, but we'll need to pay attention to this in a way we haven't before. That's a very good point. Yeah, a lot. I mean... When, when we were in Philadelphia, a bunch of the uh, Pennsylvania judges were elected. They have, and in a lot of states, judges run for office. So um, it's, it's something to keep an eye on. DeRay, who's on Pod Save the People this week? We have David Kamen, who was a former, he worked with you all. He uh, did, yeah. On the White House. He is a tax expert. We also have Mercer, who's, um, who wrote The Color of Money, who is a, an expert on the racial wealth gap, and, and she's joining us. So I'm excited uh, for us to have uh, another conversation about how we close the racial wealth gap and to add some more nuance to the tax conversation. Yeah, did uh, I'm, I'm guessing uh, Cayman's not a fan of this tax plan, huh? He is not a fan. It helps <laughs> us figure out like why we should all not be a fan. Yeah, no, we were just talking about that too. It's it's another one of these things. It's sort of going under the radar here, but something that we could stop if we all uh, hit the phones this week because uh, they're both trying to pass these plans out of committee, and they are very bad plans that will increase inequality in a huge way. So, and always again with the government by sucker punch, which is delay, 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 and then oh, we're having a vote, and it's going to happen now. Yeah. That's it. They it's, say that, like, uh, one of the things that David talks about is that the timeline is to get this done by Christmas. Like, that's nuts. Yeah, it is. And this week is critical because they think that if they can pass it out of uh, committee in the Senate and then pass the House this week, by the end of this week, they'll have enough time to do it by Christmas. But if we can delay that somehow by throwing a wrench in this, um, then the timeline slips. And the more it slips, the better it gets for us. And especially if Doug Jones wins, again, McConnell would have one less vote for this in the Senate. It would make that make the path even tougher. So everyone get on the phones this week to stop the tax plan. DeRay, Positive the People drops Tuesday. Thanks for joining us, and uh, and we'll all be sure to check it out. Cool. Talk to you guys later. Romper, right. buy the rompum. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye, Hey, it's Lovett, and I'm on my way to your city. And by on my way, I mean I'm still in the shower, but still, about to head out. Love It or Leave It Live on Tour is heading all over the country. We'll be in Charlotte, Asheville, Boston, Madison, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And if we're not coming to your city this time, I'm sorry, the country is too big. Take it up with the pioneers. To learn more and get tickets, head to crooked.com slash events. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious... He'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else Tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local Tiki Bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. 
but we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. On the pod today, we are very lucky to have the former anchor of the CBS Evening News and the author of the new book, What Unites Us, Dan Rather. Dan, welcome to Pod Save America. Glad to be with you. Thank you very much for having me on. So um, you were on the front lines reporting on the struggle for civil rights, the Vietnam War, Watergate, Iran-Contra. How does the Trump presidency compare to these other historical moments of crisis and challenge that you've reported on? Well, the Trump's presidency, first and foremost, and I think increasingly people who didn't know it before beginning to recognize it, is unique. Of course, every presidency is unique in its own ways. But we have never had a president who, among other things, many other things, so relentlessly and so personally attacks uh, the whole idea of a free and independent, fiercely independent when necessary press. Uh, He's directed his venom at uh, individual reporters. He's directed it at specific journalistic institutions. And then he's indicted and found guilty the entire press by saying they are, quote, enemies of the people. It's the rare president in our history. In fact, I can't find any who didn't have uh, any ill feelings about the president at any time. Every president goes through a period, and sometimes several periods, and says things about press coverage, sometimes uh, valid, sometimes not. But even during the Nixon administration, it was nothing to compare with what we are, are seeing now. And, of course, it fits into the larger story of the Trump presidency, one of uh, the tone and tem- tenor of his presidency uh, has been negative and frankly, seeks to divide us for his own partisan political and personal benefit. So this effort to convince people that, well, this is normal. Yes, Donald Trump's a little different, but he's shaking things up. But, you know, maybe it was necessary. This is not normal. It is not in keeping with the American spirit. And overall, in the main, and that includes what he does about the press, uh, it's divisive, not unifying. Uh, Dan, when I see things the Trump administration does and says, I often fall into the trap of hyperbole and, and assume it's it's the most hostile they've ever been to the press or, you know, this is the most egregious lie I've seen out of a White House over some period of time. But you covered uh, a whole series of presidents. H- how does what you, the hostility to the press and the dishonesty you see compare to, say, the height of the Vietnam War? when we had generals and politicians alike telling us everything was going well, uh, when in fact we were losing on the battlefield or, or other such sort of times of heightened conflict during the Nixon administration? Well, very good point. However, none of those who criticized the press, none of those in power, including President Johnson, President Johnson got frustrated with coverage of the press because it wasn't reporting the war on the ground the way he wanted it reported. However, none of them, from President Johnson on down, including the generals, number one, they never attacked journalism as a whole. Mm -hmm. They never said anything even remotely approaching that the press is, quote, enemies of the people. On occasion, they directed their frustration and anger at individual reporters, but always at they directed it at what the reporters had reported, not at the reporters personally have a frame of reference here. You remember during the campaign when President Trump, uh, what a terrible picture it was, uh, ridiculed an individual reporter who had physical challenges and mm-hmm. mimicked him. It was In the Vietnam War, we were a divided people. Just as many or more people were deeply worried whether the country would hold together during the Vietnam War. But Attacks on the press were of a whole different level, far below anything we're seeing during the Trump administration. And I mentioned before that President Nixon didn't like the press at all. And through surrogates, he had attacks on the press. But again, out of the president's own mouth, nothing approaching what President Trump has said. 
And even with the surrogates, they, they rarely really came down hard on individual reporter personally. Mm-hmm. It's just I can't emphasize enough because this is not just an issue that affects journalists. Of course, it affects us, affects our reputation, affects our credibility. But this is something that goes to the very heart of of our core beliefs and, pr- frankly, what has united us for all these years our country's been in, in existence, and that is a recognition that a free and independent press is the red-beating heart of freedom and democracy. And if you don't have it as part of the check and balance on power, then you're going to have a different kind of country. Mm-hmm. So you have had something of a renaissance on social media. You've become like a Facebook star. Now, usually Facebook stars tend to be very young people jumping off of buildings <laughs> into pools from great heights. Um, how have you managed to compete with that? You know, what, what, what is this sudden appeal to, to a lot of people kind of looking to you in this moment? Well, you know, I, I continue to be amazed by what's happened on content I file on social media. I never expected uh, anything approaching this kind of reach. I say that with uh, humility because I should. There are plenty of people who have more reach than I have. But to reach on a regular basis two and a half, three million people on a Facebook page and sometimes have posts reach, you know, three, five, occasionally 20 million people, frankly, I never expected it. I'm still rather amazed by it. I know what I'm trying to do on on Facebook. Uh, I have my own Facebook page and then a companion Facebook page called News and Guts, which we expand out to a little more news coverage, that if I have anything to contribute, and I'm not sure that I do, but if I have anything to contribute, it's some context and perspective, including historical perspective, and to try to present a, an experienced and maybe at my best steady voice uh, I can only conclude that that's been the the appeal of it. Uh, I am, among many things I'm amazed about, and I use that word measurably, is that there's so many people that are included in our audience now. And let's face it, you know, I haven't been regularly on full-scale television for almost 12 years. I left CBS News 12 years ago. And while, yes, I expected some people who remember when I was on the evening news and remember when I was on 60 Minutes, to find a whole new audience of people who range in age roughly you know, 18 to 35, a large part of our Facebook audience, is, well, amazing. The only word I can think about it is also gratifying. Do you think it has anything to do with, like, a sense of mistrust? I mean, there's has to be some connection with people feeling like they don't trust what the news is doing now and then going to somebody they maybe associate with their childhood or with, with a, a different era in journalism. Well, this is a constant challenge. Uh, there are two parts of that. First, there are, there are those people who for a very long time has have believed uh, that the press is heavily skewed to the what they call the liberal or progressive side. Those people have been around for a long time. Then the, the other main group are, are younger people who don't have memories of the civil rights struggle or the Vietnam War, who just have grown up with so much coming at them that they tend not to trust anybody. The best we can do as journalists, what I try to do is, first of all, I try to listen to people. And one of the suggestions that I make and what unites us is we need a more civil tone and need to listen to one another. So I try to listen to criticism. I always try to make the point, the following points in a short list. Number one, we make mistakes in journalism. I've made my mistakes. There's no way to do journalism perfectly. It's a rather crude art. It's not a, a precise science. But, but try to explain to people that what I'm, I try to do for most of my career and what most journalists try to do is be an honest broker of information. So in answer to your question, how you deal with it, you, know, you try to listen to people try to address their points, including, well, yes, we do make mistakes, and when we make mistakes, we should come full, but never buy into the idea that, well, the press should be completely discounted, that none of them are doing very much, and they deal in, quote, fake news, and they're, quote, enemies of the people. This is, quite frankly, uh, unreasonable. And I do find that if, if one listens and then tries to make your point about what 
good journalism is and how many people striving to do it, we can make some headway, but you're never going to convince everybody. So uh, the New York Times recently rolled out a new social media policy that basically prohibits all reporters from posting anything that would jeopardize the appearance of objectivity. It says, if our journalists are perceived as biased or if they engage in editorializing on social media, that can undercut the credibility of the entire newsroom. What do you make about this growing worry among mainstream outlets about even the perception of bias, you know, from other people? It seems like you're you're not as concerned about that when you're posting your Facebook essays, not that they're biased, but you know, you've been sounding the alarm about Trump. What do you think about some outlets just being almost more concerned about balance than they are about anything else? Well, first of all, uh, I, I, I consider balance a very, I won't say dangerous, but a problematic word for journalists because all too often striving for balance, laying down a policy of balance really can take you pretty quickly into false equivalency of saying, well, there are two sides to every story and the two sides are pretty much equal. First of all, some stories have four, six, or eight sides, not just two sides. But also the fact that the equivalency cannot be and should not be always drawn even. But to your point about the Times policy and others that are worried about, quote, objectivity, uh, it's not in me to criticize the New York Times, which is a great inst- uh, journalistic institution, uh, and I think a national treasure is, is Washington Post and, and some other newspapers and print people who are trying to do a good job. However, I think it's very important, and particularly in the, in the post-digital divide, our heavily technological electronic journalism age, to make it clear to news consumers that this would be my preference, to first of all explain there's so-called, quote, straight news in which we try to present the facts uh, and bear witness to facts and, and direct quotes. Then there's analysis, which tries to connect the dots. Uh, as somebody once said, you can know all, all the facts and still not know the truth. So there's straight news reporting. There's analysis, which seeks to take the gathered straight news and make a pattern out of it, connect connect the various parts of it. Then there's commentary. Commentary is just, well, okay, this is what appears to be the situation. Let me tell you what I think about it. It's commentary. It doesn't necessarily urge a course of action. And then there's the editorial uh, in which uh, it suggests, if not indeed uh, strongly suggests, a course of action. So you start by explaining that, that those are the four general headings under which journalists operate. I would think that a major newspaper, let me not single out the Times, rather than center on, listen, we're very concerned about the perception, just the perception of objectivity, to explain to their readers what it is they're trying to do and allow their expert staff of journalists to do straight news reporting, do analysis, do commentary, and yes, from time to time, uh, do editorial and present a point of view that suggests a course of action. It seems to me that would be the better way to go, but I do want to emphasize that the New York Times doesn't need any advice from me. <laughs> Dan, for a long period of time, there was network news that while they were often accused of bias by conservatives, I think we would all argue tried to play it down the middle. The advent of cable news seems to have led to uh, more partisan news channels. I mean, Fox News, I would argue, is, is borderline a propaganda network now. When you look back at the rise of cable news, do you think it was a net benefit for the news gathering business and news consuming public when you look at it, what it has become? Well, let the record show on radio I'm smiling. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Recorded. Uh, you know, Duly noted. Uh, this is a muscular question. I think the answer directly is overall in the main it's a net plus however it certainly has had its negative aspects some of which that you've mentioned that at least one of the channels and you could argue at least two Mm -hmm. are outright propaganda uh, networks and uh, I do agree that, that Fox News and I've gotten in trouble from saying this before but I say it again particularly in their prime time news area it's pretty hard to 
to come to any conclusion other than they are a basic propaganda operation for a partisan political point of view. But back to the, the core question about cable news, that it is true that back in the day where you had the so-called big three networks, there was a concentrated effort. It was a matter of policy and more than policy. It was what was in the heart and journalistic soul of the people who worked at ABC News, NBC, and CBS to be what I described before as witnesses and honest brokers of information and to drain out insofar it was possible any commentary or editorial. Remember the four areas I talked before to deal in straight news uh, and analysis. Now, Cable television, along with the elimination of limitations on uh, radio, one doesn't want to underestimate that talk radio, once the FCC changed the rules where it, it didn't, you didn't, were not required under FCC regulations to present very uh, differing points of view uh, in news and, and public information, once those rules by the boards... Radio, talk radio, led the way and, and sort of showed cable what was possible for cable television. So you had a combination of talk radio, the Rush Limbaugh's of the world, and the, what cable news became with uh, Fox News leading the way there. Uh, has, no question has had an overall negative effect, but I come back if you say to me, well, is the news consumer better served now in the second decade of the 21st century than he or she was in, say, 1970 or 1980, I'd take a deep breath and say I think uh, overall probably yes. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Dan Rather, for joining us. The book is What Unites Us. Everyone go buy it. And this was Dan Rather, former CBS Evening News anchor. Thank you very much for your time and interest today. Courage. All right. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Thank you, Dan. Thank, Thank you, Dan, you. so much. We appreciate it. But listen, I really appreciate you having me on, and you know I know of your work, and uh, I wish you good luck and Godspeed. Thanks, sir. We wish you the same. Take care. Thanks a lot. All right, that's our show for today. Thanks to Dan Rather and Duray McKesson for joining us, and uh, you know we'll uh, talk to you guys on guys, Thursday. Guys, keep your uh, keep your heads on a swivel. There are Keurigs falling from the sky. <laughs> watch your feet. Keep your wits about you. There are new signs going up around highways that say "Watch for falling, falling Keurigs. Keurigs." Donate to Doug Jones. Watch for falling, uh, impotent attempts at seeming like a person who cares about things. MAGA. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs>